0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Saxa's Essay Today podcast. My name is Michelle Botcher, and I'm an associate professor at Clemson University, and I'm also your host for this program. Today I'm pleased to be talking with Saxa experts, Tony Coffin, Joe Buck, and Melanie McClellan about the Saxa organization, some of the rites, rituals, and traditions that support Saxa. Thanks so much for joining us today and looking forward to our chat. Before we start, I'd, I'd like to start each episode by just getting to know who you are outside of your job identity and things like that. So, Tony, if you wouldn't mind starting, what who are you outside of work? What are some hobbies you have, things you're reading, watching, listening to? What do you enjoy besides the work that you do?
1: Uh, I would say in terms of hobbies, uh, probably making cards. That's become a big thing for me. Uh, I really enjoy that. Many people know I have an obsession (laughs) with collecting fountain pens, and we won't talk about how many I actually have, uh, because I could probably go a year without using one twice Um, in terms of that. What am I watching? You know, I'm ashamed to admit this, but I'm hooked on uh, Dexter, The New Blood, I don't know what that says about me that I love a show about a serial killer, Uh, but I love that show. Um, My Guilty Pleasure is a show called Claws Mm -hmm. on TNT that's totally like Days of Our Lives, Joe. You need to be watching it. Um, And, of course, listening, you know, anything by Dolly Parton and I'm there. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Have you watched the last episode of Dexter yet? I have. I watched it Sunday night. (laughs) <laughs> All right. We might have to set up a time to do. We do. It's process, that. yes.
2: <laughs> Very good.
0: Joe, how about you?
2: What's, um, what's your world look like? Interestingly enough, you know, when I retired from Armstrong and then ran for office, I was Savannah Chatham School Board President for um, eight years, had term limits, sat out four years, and then the board got in trouble with SACs. And so I ran again, and I'm in the third year of that first four year term, the second time. Um, my time, unfortunately, unfortunately, since COVID has been very, very different from my first time in elected office. Um, it has been a, a, a roller coaster of people being so frightened and so angry that they try to do the same thing for everybody around them. And so I have honestly spent a lot of time with board members and staff and parents trying to help people weather this storm. Um, On a more fun side, uh, my grandchildren and children make fun of my wife and me because we're reality TV people. I don't watch The Bachelor, I refuse to watch The Bachelor, but I do watch many of the other, I like Survivor, I like uh, uh, many of those like that, but right now I'm really hooked on Yellowstone. I mean, I am hooked on Yellowstone more, I love the violence, and see, I think that just takes out uh, some of what I'm living right now. Uh, (laughs) I teach a Sunday school class every Sunday, and my, uh, my class is celebrating its 30th year this year. And I have been their basically their sole teacher that entire time. And then lastly, I try to read a good bit. I do everything on Kindle now, but I just finished uh, Colson Whitehead's. Um, I'm reading Underground Railroad, but I just finished The Nickel Boys. And the hot new book in Savannah that I am struggling with, that all of my young friends are reading is called Cloud Cuckoo Land. And I think it's beyond me, but I'm trying. Um, everybody uh, tells me how I'm just gonna be enthralled with it. And I, I, not that yet, but I happen to live on the river. We live on Moon River. And so I spend a good bit of time every day sitting in the porch swing out there on the river and just saying, God, it's really good to be alive at 80 years old. Great.
0: Thanks so much, Joe. Melanie, what about you?
3: Well, I moved from Carrollton, Georgia, um, to Rossville, just outside Chattanooga, about a year ago, right in the middle of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I can see Lookout Mountain or Lookout Mountain and Rock City from my sunroom in my house. And so partly that moving the pandemic, I haven't gotten involved in the community like I would have other times, you know, doing volunteer work and stuff like that, um, but but I'm do, I'm exploring the area and, and getting settled, you know, getting settled in. So I still spend a lot of time in antique stores and home decor stores, you know, buying stuff just to get the house just right. Uh, you can shop socially distance in antique stores forever. You can wander around and and, and do that. Um, I'm also a reader. Uh, I've, I'm in um, two book clubs right now. Actually, one is a Zoom book club, and I think there are six women. And I think three of us. Oh, at least three of us are former Saxon members um, that we connected for one book. And now we're, we're kind of hooked on it. That we have me, someone from Chicago, someone from Memphis, someone from Connecticut and someone from Athens. And, and uh, so that's, that and seems like one more. Um, and so we read a variety of kinds of stuff. And then I'm in a book club associated with my church. That's reading a lot of uh, uh, books recommended through the cooperative Baptist fellowship that are, very social justice books, but with a Christian take on them, and so that's been been really interesting to read some of some of those kinds of things and do that. Um, but I'm also my guilty pleasure is reading mysteries, and I love it when I can read a mystery and then find out it's a whole series. And so I'm I'm currently into the Louise Penny Inspector Gamache series, and um, I, I think I've, I'm on my eighth book in three weeks. Um, I just I read one and download the next one on the Kindle and read the next one. And so I think I have eleven more to go to get through the series and. You know, TV for me for mostly is background noise, you know, college football just gotten over. I do that. And then um, Hallmark movies. So I just can't stand them anymore. And, and a lot of HGTV things. I like to watch the, those kind of things. So
0: which is perfect as you're settling into your new place. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Yeah, and I see a picture and I go, oh, let me go look for this. <laughs> <laughs> I spent a fair right. amount of money at Home Depot, too, in the last year.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all very much for that. Let's
0: get a little bit of perspective about your sort of journey into and through and kind of where you are right now related to student affairs in higher ed. Um, you know, we always talk about how it's such a small field. And I think it's interesting to hear people's stories because that's a point of connection. Oh, I work there too, or I'm familiar with that um, area of the country or whatever it might be. So, Joe, would you mind starting this time? and Telling your story a little bit professional.
2: Sure. I came, uh, My I'm an Alabama native. I came from a very small town in Alabama. Uh, I always amazed people in Savannah because growing up in my little town our, and we were not on a, a party line, my phone number was eight. <laughs> it was no area code. It was no prefix. It was eight. And my granddaddy's drugstore was two seven and my aunt's house was one three. So I still remember, you know, those kinds of things that probably made me who I am more than anything I know about. I had loving parents. My dad died when I was 14. That was a huge um, disturbance in my stability of a, a little kid growing up, but uh, went to college and had many majors. Uh, my mother said that I majored in fraternity and minored in yearbook. And uh, pretty much that was the case. I uh, needed uh, much help with academics. Um, actually, while I was at Auburn, I uh, had the wonderful experience to meet Dr. Jim Foy, James Foy, who was really one of the the forerunners in our in our field. And and I remember distinctly going in his office and saying, how do you get to be what you are? And he told me about student affairs and student personnel. I didn't even know it was a profession. But graduated, uh, went in the service, uh, Navy veteran, made five trips to Vietnam, uh, came back and met my second mentor, in fact, interestingly enough, the first person I had ever heard called a mentor, and that was Dr. Melvine Hardy, and she called herself that, and so likewise, we all did too, um, but graduated, and then um, heard about a job as Director of Student Activities at a little school in Savannah, Georgia, on Strong State College. 1,500 students had just become a four-year institution of the state system in Georgia. Uh, Moved here uh, for those young people in the field today that know they don't get paid enough. That was 1968. And with a master's degree in military experience, uh, my starting salary at Armstrong was $9,400. And I was overpaid in many ways. I couldn't believe how much money I had because I made that much. But uh, we came here to stay two years because of lots of circumstances. Uh, We've now been here since 1968. Uh, My wife is a health professional and ended up being uh, assistant dean and dean at Armstrong II. And we together had 75 years of service when we uh, graduated, when we retired. Uh, We have two children. Uh, Our son is a graduate of the Naval Academy. Um, got a master's and almost a doctorate. After he got out of the Navy, came home, said, God's called me to be a Methodist minister. Don't have any money and don't have a place to live. And thank God we were able to get him in Emory quickly. And he got a master's and then a doctorate in theology. And just recently during the pandemic, he is now a Navy chaplain in Guam for three years with his family. Uh, They've just been one year into a three-year tour in Guam. My daughter, um, who would tell you she's the least uh, person to be in education is an assistant principal of a middle school in Atlanta. And uh, so uh, education has been part of our life and is still. Um, That's really my story. Along the way, I knew that I needed to be supremely involved in my community, wherever that was, because my folks uh, always said, we don't have anything but what we can give and our giving was our service. And so um, uh, I worked here with United Way and of course the school board has been a labor of intense dedication for me because of my own background in higher education I was able to offer something that a lot of candidates cannot. So uh, that's really where I am. I'm about to be 81 years old in a month. So,
0: All right. Thanks so much, Joe. And thanks for mentioning some of your mentors along the way, too. Uh, Melanie, what about you?
3: Well, I did not come into student affairs in the sort of traditional way. I didn't do any of those student affairsy things as an undergraduate, I was not an RA, I was not an orientation leader, I was not Greek. I only lived on on campus for a year, Um, but I had come, we moved around a lot when I was growing up and we ended up in Bremen, Georgia, which at that time was population 3000 and went to high school and my class was was 47 students and that was the only school in town. It's not like because schools were split or anything. So, I was really involved in high school stuff, you know, president of everything and all. And I went to the University of Alabama as an undergraduate. And it was kind of nice to go somewhere everybody didn't know you <laughs> and, and see so you like you in a hometown. And I was a college debater. And the debate team at Alabama was a very demanding thing. And so that was really where all my energies uh, went. Now, I found out later on, many years later, when I studied student development theory, that being a college debater hit all the things that they say was important with your engagement with faculty members, your engagement with knowledge, your engagement with colleagues, and we got to travel and all that. So I did the, did the debate thing, just barely even aware that, I don't know that I even knew student affairs was out there. You know, I wasn't in trouble, didn't have any problems. Um, and I graduated from there and I got offered a job back in my hometown, didn't know what I wanted to do yet, um, back in Bremen as their community uh, education director. they just gotten a grant and the um, superintendent thought, he asked me if I wanted to come and do it. And it was basically what I did was, um, you know, a small town like that. The school is it, the school gym has to be used for everything in town, whether that's a square dance or a cancer fundraiser or whatever. And I was kind of the person that just figured that out and connected uh, the the community. Um, and while I was there, because I was young and single, I would get asked a lot to take students places, you know, yearbook camps or science fairs or whatever. I'd go travel with them, and I started getting to know high school students. And then they would go off to college and they would come back to visit me and they came back in town and all of a sudden I had my light bulb moment, my aha moment, because I loved watching how they grew from the yeah. time they graduated from high school to they came back their freshman year or, or, or at the end of their freshman year and that was my aha. And lo and behold, I discovered there was a career out there doing that. Um, but I still didn't really know anything about it. And a friend of mine um, had graduated from Georgia Southwestern, had been student government president there, and they were trying to recruit him to come back and be an admissions counselor. He had no interest in it. He said, wait a minute, I got a friend who might want to do that. So recommended me and I went to Georgia Southwestern as an admissions counselor for one year. And um, but and I decided being an admissions counselor really is a good way to learn about student affairs or colleges because you get to see the whole college uh, when you're doing that. And so sometime, I guess, during the spring, someone there said, well, you know, begin to tell me more about that. You'll need a master's degree, et cetera, and encouraged me to go up to Atlanta because every spring there was a thing called the Southeastern Placement Showcase. It was always right after school ended and the halls closed everywhere. And Saxo was one of the co-sponsors of that, where people who had jobs, it was like a you know, placement thing. People who had jobs were there. People who needed jobs were there. And and they just suggested it'd be a good place for me to learn more about it. And I went and of course, I was one of the few people there that didn't have a master's degree yet and was looking for a graduate program. So I got a lot of attention. <laughs> so, yeah. And I ended up connecting there with the people from Mississippi State. And as a result of that, I ended up going to Mississippi State as a residence hall director uh, and to work on a degree. And what they called was college student personnel, a counseling degree. And it was called college student personnel then and went to Mississippi State and found out I loved it. And again, I'd only lived on campus for a year. Um, but I always appreciate the fact that the housing folks at Mississippi State, Gene Tyson in particular, who I'll mention later, um, he thought it was really important. Everybody didn't have to come in having been an RA or been, in, been whatever. He wanted people that brought in with diverse kinds of experiences. Uh, and so I was in a, with a building of 532 women. And I love the fact that I never knew when someone knocked on my door what it would be, if it would be great or if it'd be whatever. Um, really just planned to get my master's degree. And I was a Hall director because it paid, paid for it. But you know, like Joe, you end up staying somewhere. So two years later, I ended up getting promoted um, to the assistant director of housing uh, for Residence Life and did that for four years and then decided that I needed a doctorate if I wanted to do something else. Didn't know yet if I wanted to be a faculty member or administrator, but I left and went to Ohio State uh, to get my PhD. And while I was there, I got to work in the Akuho office for the first two years, which was, was just fascinating. And then um, my last thing there, I edited the the Talking Stick, and I was editing it when we first, when PageMaker, the first desktop publishing, uh, was released. And so I um, I remember when the, the board was there one day, and so it was people whose names Joe and Tony will recommend, like Jim Grimm and Jim Grub and Gary Schwartzmule and all, and they were gathered around my computer, just amazed that I could move pictures around on the screen and, and do things like that, and. Um, So I did that. And in my third year there, I was able to work in an office of career development for faculty and staff and learned a lot about mid-career kind of change. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do uh, when it was over, but I came back down to uh, NASPA was in New Orleans that year. And I I actually went to Starkville and rode down with Gene Tice. uh, And on the way we talked and the person who had taken my place was getting ready to leave. And he said, you can come back and have your old job back. It'll be great for me. It'll be great for you. You can finish your you know, your dissertation, and I was tired of being broke, and I was tired of being cold, and that was good, so I went back to Mississippi State as associate director, and then a year later, uh, Jean ended up being promoted to assistant VP, and I ended up becoming the director of housing and residence life for, um, I guess, five years. Then after that, um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next. I mean, I enjoyed being director of housing and residence life, but after all, after a while, you just have too many discussions about roofs and shower pans and you know, all that kind of facility stuff. Knew I probably wanted to move up and there wasn't gonna be a way to move up at Mississippi State because nobody above me was leaving. And if they did, all the people at my level had more experience than I did. And so an opportunity came up and I went to Georgia Southern University as the assistant vice president for student affairs and our associate vice president. And then my fourth year there, I ended up being the interim uh, vice president. Um, thinking I might wanna apply for the current vice president's job, but a new president came in and I figured out we just weren't gonna be a good match. And so I started looking and I ended up going to University of West Georgia as the vice president for student affairs and enrollment management and stayed there for 11 years until I retired Um, and um, was able to do some cool and interesting things there, built some buildings, um, helped start a college student affairs grad program and things like that. And so then I retired in 2011 And um, when, um, but the university, they kept bringing me back and hiring me in interim part-time roles to help them problem solve. So the first two years I came in and I ran the college student affairs program. We had a couple of grad students who had, I mean, a couple of faculty members who had left unexpectedly. So I came in and taught them that and managed that until we could get it back on track. And I'm really proud to say that's turned out to be such a successful program. And um, and so then I, finished that, and then they hired me as the uh, director of community engagement to create an office of community engagement engagement and work with the community. And I joked that I was like match.com, that someone in the campus would say, who out at the college can help me with such and such? Or somebody on campus would say, well, who out in the town can help me with such and such? And I helped bring them together. And probably my two things I was proudest of doing that was that we created the West Georgia Nonprofit Network, to pull together and we've got 100 and something uh, nonprofits that it just gives them a way to talk to each other and to, and to continue to do professional development. And then I also worked to get us recognized by the Carnegie Foundation as a community engaged institution. So when I finished that, they decided they wanted to turn to a full-time job and I didn't wanna do that. And I left and then for just a brief period, we were in a presidential transition. And so I ran a, a, a county education collaborative while we figured out who's gonna be our president. Um, and then I finally decided during the pandemic, it was time to retire. And, um, and so I've moved up here and I don't know exactly what I'll do. I do some career counseling for particularly for some young student affairs professionals, um, career transition counseling. I did a program at SACS. I just did one recently at UT Chattanooga um, to help them sort of figure out those things. So I don't think I'm supposed to talk about mentors yet, am I? Oh, go um, ahead. Yeah.
0: You're okay. on the roll. So keep going.
3: All right. And then I'll quit. So I, because a part of that, um, I mentioned Gene Tice, and you will hear his name a lot, like Melvin Hardy. You'll hear his name a lot. um, Gene was a director of housing at Mississippi State, and so he was my longtime mentor. Um, And the two assistant directors were John Smith and Connie Brins at the time, and they were all great. And as I was reflecting on it, I think what they were so great about were a couple things. First of all, they kept a solid student development focus. We weren't just learning to run, and we were a, a standalone housing unit. 5,000 students, facilities, all of that. But our focus was not on the facilities and business part. Our focus was on student development. And then, so that was great. And we had a solid philosophical um, grounding in that. But then we also learned all the practical skills you needed to do that. We learned you had to manage budgets and you had to manage facilities and you had to you know do those kinds of things. And so that was great. And then the other thing was that they really um, emphasized um, they basically it was an expectation you'd be involved in either SACS or a CEO, period. <laughs> it wasn't really something that was debatable at that time. And they made that possible by well, we got hundred dollars a year travel money, but they would if, but if they were going to a conference, they drove the van. So that way we could all go cheap. And so we all went and they helped us with program proposals, and then they would push to get on committees and they would nominate you, they would introduce you to people and all those kinds of things. And then eventually, Gene really remained my mentor for a very long time, helping connect me to the campus. And I'll let Tony tell his story in a minute. But he came into my story about a year or so later when um, we hired him as a my first year as assistant director. We hired him as a full time hall director, and then a year later, when John left, uh, Tony was promoted into the other assistant director role. We were colleagues, and so he would be I don't I don't know what you'd call a colleague who's not really a mentor. We've been colleagues for colleagues forever, and. Uh, And the other thing I thought I could list dozens and dozens of people in Saxa and in other places. And it was Georgia. And I, I, I would, I can't do that all day, but so that's my,
0: we'll do do another episode on that. Okay.
3: Um,
0: I, and I just want to make a comment. I bet your background in debate served you really
3: well across your career at different times. It did. It did. And where it really served me well is when I got to the doctoral program because other people were intimidated by, um, research and I just wasn't it was actually easier than what I'd done as an undergraduate to begin with but Mm -hmm. it did I just I still talk too fast because of debate but it really did because it first of all you had to be able to debate two sides of everything you always have to be able to be a devil's advocate and that's I think that's a talent not or skill not enough people have they get hung up in their own view of things they can't step and look at objectively Uh, so yeah great well thank you so much I
0: appreciate that all right Tony how about you
1: Yeah, I think you'll hear some commonality among our stories and among our themes. Like Joe, I grew up in a real small town uh, where um, it was expected you would go to college and it was expected you'd be involved and expected you would give back to the community you lived and served. So that theme was very common. Now, unlike Joe, I did have a party line telephone. (laughs) So... We said we weren't gonna gossip today, but boy, it was fun to listen to the party line, to listen to other people, but we'll let that be for another episode. Um, So I I, I grew up in a real small town, as I said, I went to school at the University of Tennessee. Um, And unlike Melanie, I was the opposite. I was the overly involved student. I did all the things that a student affairs uh, person would do in terms of being an RA, an orientation leader, student government, tour guide, all those things. However, never knew there was a degree in student affairs. No one ever mentioned that to me. No one ever talked to me about that. Unlike today where I think we're way more intentional in our mentoring and socializing uh, folks into the profession. That happened very serendipitous, I think in my generation. So um, despite all of my involvement, I at the University of Tennessee I ended up staying there and getting a master's actually in sociology, not in student personnel. Um, and it was the fortitude of a great um, sociology advisor who at the end of the first year said, you're not a sociologist. You are a student affairs person at heart. And you need to be in the student affairs program. And so she let me take my last year, all my courses in social, in uh, student affairs and student personnel services at Tennessee. So I'm forever grateful for her for getting me on the right career path uh, with that. Uh, Dr. Suzanne Kurth, I'll never forget that. I was fortunate enough to be hired by Melanie. I was gonna say, if she didn't mention that I was gonna be hurt that that was her best hire she ever made um, at Missouri State. Uh, and we worked together for a long time there, uh, both as a, a, me as a full-time coordinator, she said, and as an assistant director. Um, and uh, from there, I moved to Clemson to be the Director of Residence Life. So I spent about 13 years in university housing. Uh, I still miss it. I still miss the people. I still miss the team aspect of it. I don't miss the 3 a.m. phone calls, but I do miss the team and the collaborative nature of it. And like Melanie, when I think about people who mentored me, you know, I was very fortunate at the University of Tennessee to have Jim Grubb. When I went to Mississippi State, I had Gene Tice and Melanie. Um, when I came to Clemson, I had Berna Howell. You know, I always joke in my life as a practitioner, I never had a boss I didn't love and respect working with. And that is unusual. That is so unusual. But I had some great people doing that. Uh, After about 13 years, I made a career transition into faculty. And that happened when the university reorganized and said, you're now the director of university housing and the director of student conduct anybody who knows me knows I was probably not a good fit for me to be the director of student conduct. Um, Not because I wasn't good at it, but but it drained me emotionally. Um, And so I started looking for other positions and was fortunate to be able to get a position in the faculty at Clemson, where I'd been serving as an adjunct for the year before. And um, so for the last probably 25 years, it's hard to say out loud, I've been a faculty member here. uh, And Again, success is based on a lot of people. So for my faculty mentor life, I think of people like Susan Underwood and um, Barbara Griffin and Diane Cooper. Those are the people who helped socialize me into being a faculty member and what it meant to be a faculty member with that. So I've had two really good careers as the practitioner career and the faculty career. And I hope both have made me better at the other uh, with that.
0: So one question before I get to kind of the the list of questions. So Melanie and Tony, you all work together. How did the three of you, are? is the connection with the three of you bringing Joe into it, is that Saxa driven or did you all know yes. each other in other ways? Saxa? It was Saxa, yeah.
3: Okay. Yeah, because you guys- Tony and I actually, yeah, we only worked together three years, Tony, or four yeah, years? Four years, I think. But then we became writing colleagues and presenting colleagues and all that. And later on, I sort of worked with Joe in a different way because he was vice president for Armstrong Atlantic and I was vice president of University of West Georgia. And the state of Georgia, the vice president of student affairs for all those organizations work well together. But I, but, but the SACS relationship predated that.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, and I think I think it's important to remember when Melanie and I talk about the, the Jim Grubbs and the Gene Tices and the Dan Hellenbecks, the Joe Buck goes in that same line. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's in that same line of people that we all grew up respecting and wanting to be like, <laughs> you know, so we just didn't work for Joe, but we worked with him and for him in Saxa, the other folks we worked more directly with. So that was, that connection was always there. He's in that same, um, I would say, re- revered category of folks who've really impacted our profession.
3: I did think, Tony, when you were talking too, I don't, I'm, I, you'd have to look at the list, but. You Tell me hiring you. I can think of at least three sacks of presidents that I hired because I hired Tony and then I hired Ian Bailey and I hired Matt Varga, all at different and, places to and do Clay Brown. Things. Huh? And Clay Brown. And Clay Brown, yeah. Four, you four sacks of presidents. And Melissa Shivers worked when I was, v, I was associate VP, but I can't claim credit for it because she was already there and she was, <laughs> you know, young. She was young, young, young. But um, but then but then Tony taught her. So it's really funny when you get into these relationships how we all um do those things
0: well so let's let's move to saxa and how did you get involved in that organization because there are so many where you could give your time and you know melanie you talked about look if you're going to work here it's either Saxa or see what what drove that what is it about um every organization thinks it's special right um, but what is it that really has drawn you in? Cause you all have given significant time to the organization and developing the people in the organization. So what, what got you there to begin with and what has kept you there?
3: Me first, whoever wants, yeah, go for it. Okay. Um, well, I mentioned when I was at, so I was, I was state and my first involvement was primarily in Seahoe because I was in housing and that made the most sense. And, um, but then, at the t- when I decided um, that I needed to become more of a generalist, then I decided to look more at the other, at the other kinds of things. And for me, I, I maintained my membership in both ACPA and NASPA for all those years. But SACS, I made a conscious decision to make that my professional home. For me, it was because I liked the size, I liked the fact that it felt more like a community, that I could get to know people individually and build relationships with them. And as opposed to the larger. So it was more of a personal fit kind of thing for me. I love the fact that I mean I have people who I would consider dear friends who I only saw once a year, but I see them once a year. Every November, I would see them somewhere. But they're people to this day that I could pick up if I was driving to their town and say, let's do dinner or we keep up with them on Facebook. And this was pre-Facebook. You didn't really have those kinds of friends at other places like we do now. But they're still the people I keep up with. So. I liked it because that personal kind of thing I liked it because we didn't um because we really focused on bringing up young young people and and that we and that we were I'm trying to think of the word we were not terribly hierarchical and that I've always loved the fact that you can't look at the name tags and see whether someone's a doctor or not and whether someone's a vice president or a grad student I've always thought that was terribly important that you need to be able to sit down and have a conversation with anybody um so but for me I like the size I like the that for me that allowed me to to form those personal relationships with people
1: great yeah I think for me it's very similar it's very similar to Melanie um Jean Tice told me I was going to do it so I did it but it but at the end it became the intimacy of the people and the familiarity of the small group and the opportunity to like to get to know people like Melanie said on a on a much more uh, deeper basis and, and also opportunity to get involved and make a difference. You know, I like Melanie, I was involved in ACP and NASPA and sometimes I wondered, did I, did I, did I really make a difference? And Saxa I knew I did. I, I felt that more uh, in my heart and I felt I was able to do that more um, easily and quickly.
2: Um, I could say ditto to all of those things. Interesting for me, the size was always uh, something important to me. And I think uh, shortly after I became dean of students at Armstrong, uh, I went to NASPA, and I believe it was in St. Louis. And for a little boy from Alabama, I was just floored with being in four hotels and You couldn't get up an elevator. I mean, I remember thinking, I do not belong in this place. And Joe Buck has never felt that way, by the way. And about that same time, uh, Southern Sims, who was uh, a student affairs and later became a president in Georgia, Southern Sims, when I got promoted, said, you need to go to to Saxon. And the first Saxa conference I went to was in 1975 in uh, Nashville. And I never missed another Saxa conference uh, because it was going home every year to see your family. It was just like going to my mother's for Thanksgiving dinner Uh, because, you know, and when we were talking about mentors, as I walk in the morning, I'd been answering these questions for myself. And it's interesting to me because I would would certainly tell you about uh, Dr. Hardy and people like that. But when I think of who have the strongest mentors in many ways for me, have been all of the presidents I've served with in Saxon and all of the good friends I have like Tony and Melanie and others. When I think of what I learned from Ellen Neufeld, Melissa Shivers, um, people, Bo Seagraves, people like that when they were president, it was my honor to be able to work with them as executive director. And you think of that as kind of an advisory role. Oh my gosh, I learned so much from the way they approached problem solving and budgeting and um, significant kind of things. You know, uh, I could never say enough about Jason in these last two years when he stepped forth and said, I think we need to keep the same offices. I don't know how to do that because, you know, the Constitution says something different. But that is a way that we can survive. And, and nobody else had really even talked about that. Jason mm-hmm. Cassidy was the one. And, you know, some people you would have said, oh, well, he's just trying to be president for two years. That was never even a question with any of us. But it was, it was the leadership needed at a very crisis moment in our country and in the world. And those are the kinds of things I've learned from so many people and why I love Saxa so much. I am facing withdrawal right now, knowing that I will miss mid year meeting for the second year um, because I always saw my family. And it's going to be, uh, if I, if it's going to be a difficult time for me. And I've told Tony already when I overstepped my bounds. And, start telling him things just to tell me, go play with the water somewhere or do something and get out of here, but uh, anyway.
1: Yeah, you know, I think, I think Joe makes a great point when I think about um, learning from one another and whether it was a president or an, or an elected officer, you know, I think of people like Jim Keneally who led us through the 9-11, the conference after 9-11, I think Melanie was actually the program, doing the program booklet, I was the conference chair I think of Jim Keneally. I learned more from Jim Keneally to watch him save this organization from a huge penalty when people started canceling their registrations. And we were a really small, intimate group that year. We learned a <laughs> lot about ourselves. We learned a lot about the organization. But I think I think those kind of leaders, they're not mentors, but they're leaders who really have impacted how I go about my work and my perspective and i think joe's point is a good one
3: yeah michelle, kind of, uh, a ago, i don't know what the word there needs to be a word for that and i don't know what it is yeah. it's between mentor and colleague yeah, yeah. it's not just colleague yeah. it's like a, a level up from colleague they're not above you mentoring you but they certainly are and they're the people you can call and say i just need to talk through this with you
2: yeah.
3: um, or how would so and so do this
2: uh, michelle interesting when tony says what he says about the the conference uh, after 9-11, you probably may or may not know that that conference was in Orlando. And in, you know, we pick two and three years ahead uh, when we do a conference where the site is, in our wisdom, the name of the hotel was the Twin Towers Hotel. No. Now, let's talk about terrible planning.
0: Oh my gosh. And
2: we were in Orlando. And literally our packets uh, that you get at registration were paper sacks.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, it's interesting because Jim Keneally is why I'm in student affairs. Oh, good. I was was at the University of Arkansas in a creative writing program, but I was also a graduate, um, uh, RA for a, a graduate floor. And the creative writing program just wasn't for me. And he was the one who said to me, well, you know, there's this degree. And so that's why I kind of ended up, I mean, it is a small world, right? These names, oh, mm-hmm. the ripple effect is, is just huge. But I'm gonna, I, I know I sent you some, oh, go ahead, Joe.
2: I just have to say, I think one of the things that's key to us all saying the same thing about not knowing it was a profession Obviously, we give personal engraved invitations to students we love because we love our profession. Mm -hmm. And, And it's not like it's in the catalog saying, come one, come all, we all want you. Because when we find somebody we love and like, and they're doing a great job as a student leader, Melanie is a great example of that. You know, somebody said, you really ought to think about this and same with Tony and same with me. And I think it's just hilarious that it becomes a personal invitation into something we love.
0: Well, and it's why nobody can explain it to their parents because it's (laughs) like, what is this? I I don't know this major. So Um, I'm going to jump around in our script just a little bit because you've touched on, um, Jason's work around the pandemic, you talked about Jim Keneally with September 11th. What are some of those like key moments, some of those defining moments where it, it could be anything? It could be the organization took a different direction or there was a moment of, is this going to be sustainable? I know that was an issue around September 11th and some of the financial implications, are there are there other things or more you want to say about either one of the situation we're still in, or um, September eleventh, or other things that kind of come to mind about you know this was this was when we started going a new direction.
2: To to me, there are two things that are significant to uh, the future uh, to Saxa as we know it now. One is in the year two thousand when. Uh, SACSA was meeting for the second time in Savannah. We had met in 1990 and 2000 and 2010 in Savannah. Uh, that's not right, back it up, but three times. But the, the 2000 year uh, at that mid-year meeting, and I they had asked me to be the, the conference chair, we called it local arrangements in those days, but that's what it was. And when we met in Savannah, I became very aware listening, sitting in the mid year meeting, that we had about $15,000 in the bank and we had uh, like 200 members.
1: About 200. None yeah. of
2: those were graduate students, really. I mean, there were very few graduate students. And there was a good amount of talk around what do we do? And at The meeting before that, we had been in Louisville and Fred Rhodes had us all out to his house, all not just presidents, but friends. And Dale Adams from the University of Alabama Mobile was really suddenly pushing to have an executive director. And that's where I first heard, I literally was in a car writing with Dale when he said, this is something we need to do. Would you be interested? And at the time I just sort of passed it off and didn't think much about it. Then a few months later, three months later, we went to Savannah. And when I saw what bad shape the organization was in, it wasn't Joe Buck at all. But then before that meeting, they literally called me in the room and said, would you consider being executive director? And I really didn't jump right at the opportunity because I didn't know how long the organization was going to be here. Um, Jim Keneally's leadership through that time, shortly thereafter, uh, we had a blue ribbon task force that Jim set up. We did a weekend meeting in Savannah at Armstrong. Tony, you were there, Melanie, I don't know whether you yep, I was there. We were, we were was there. there. And literally my memory of that meeting was, we literally took a classroom in the student center and by the end of the, the weekend, every wall was totally papered with plans for Saxa.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And to me, I still, that was when we first talked about what our core values were,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and inclusiveness being just key. You know, the reason I think we're successful is because when Dr. Hardy and those people started Saxon, everybody said, you can't meet in a hotel because you got black people meeting with white people. And we don't do that. And to me, that is the proudest thing that I am of who I am a part of with Saxon. I love to tell my superintendent who's an African-American female about Saxa and the fact that it doesn't matter who you are, what you look like, what you profess to be, we take people as they are and the world could learn from us. I, I mean, I really believe that. And Jim Keneally was instrumental to me in changing that direction to where we talked about inclusiveness and collegiality and family and words like that. And to me, core values are words that, uh, I tell a story about words that are as they sound, words like twilight and gleam and things like that. You know, collegiality and inclusiveness, they sound like what they mean. And and we've been good at that. I'll shut up now.
3: <laughs> and and uh, Joe, I think, didn't Bill Kelso facilitate that? Discussion? He did, he did. Yeah, Bill, Bill sometimes, he was under the radar because Bill was, the quiet guy sometimes behind the scenes when you know taking care of other things when Joe was the guy on the stage. but I remember him doing a magnificent job of, of leading us through that values clarification um, right. post notes and all kinds of things that was yeah mm-hmm.
2: He yeah. Uh, interestingly enough about him, uh, he was a you know a student body president and I was trying to straight move him into student personnel because he was a law enforcement person on our campus. And he ended up being our student body, Michelle, president. But uh, I got him on the program at Louisville. And we presented, and he wasn't, I mean, he was an undergraduate student.
3: This was a long time Louisville, not the last Louisville. No, no, this is a (laughs)
2: long, long time ago. But we ended up, I wrote out every word of the presentation of about an hour. And it would say, Bill and he would say his thing, Joe, <laughs> and, and I would do mine. And I still, Bill and I were talking about it the other day because I, I remember Jerry Brewer, Dennis Pruitt, yeah. South Carolina group, all sitting there and they were trying to bring Bill there for a graduate program. And Bill was sweating like he was cutting the yard mm-hmm. as, a, as a young man. And the other day cleaning out the SACSA office, office I found the whole presentation on onion skin. <laughs> and, and that was the way we made our copies, but that's how Saxa impacts people. Did it so.
3: did it have any whiteout on it, Joe? <laughs> oh, yeah. Liquid yeah. paper. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think Joe makes a really good point in the ebb and flow of this organization. You know, I remember that blue and toast. I also remember. In the ebb and flow, not so long ago when we were struggling with membership, and Ellen Newfelt's leadership saved us.
2: That's exactly right. We,
1: we all got school well on the enrollment funnel. We all know more about the enrollment <laughs> funnel than we would ever want to know, to be quite honest. That's true. But you know, Ellen. Ellen, we were at a we were at a a downturn in membership, and Ellen, her leadership, is another person who really a pivotal moment in our organization that got us back on track. I mean, obviously, Ellen didn't do it alone. Jim didn't do it alone, but, but their leadership and their guidance did that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I would say, Michelle, Joe talked a lot about our history, but I think for me, one of the things I'm most proud of, Versaxa, is the fact that if you look at our history, you know, we were electing um, a, a female president, a black president, long before other organizations did that. Right. I mean, in 1955, Hardee was elected president. In 72, um, we elected our first uh, African-American president. That was way before NASPA and ACPA and other groups were doing those things.
3: Uh, Yeah, and I want to put in, because Joe referred to something that we all know, but the younger folks listening to this may not know it because it used to story. And that was the meeting to, um, in the very first SACSA conference in 1950 at Vanderbilt, there were 72 members there, Twelve of whom were from HBCUs, and that was a huge, big thing. Now most, of the, no, the institutional were integrated, or very few were it was in the South. And then there was a. I'm trying to. What was the date? The 1955 conference? Yeah,
1: 55 was 55 the 55.
3: That that um, Sacha passed a resolution. And the story that we would never have a conference. For we were we we're integrated, but but blacks had to stay at one hotel. Well, not we. I mean, I wasn't born yet, but um. <laughs> But Blacks had to stay at one hotel and Whites had to stay at another hotel where they could meet together in other places. And after the, and at that conference, they passed a resolution they would not hold the conference anywhere again that would not allow both Blacks and Whites to stay at. It took them two years to get that done, but they did it. And that Saxa held the first ever integrated conference in the city of Williamsburg in 1960. Yeah. And so a lot of people don't know some of those history that are, that are you know, key. So.
1: Well, and also key to that was, was many people don't know that Saxa historically The idea generated from a grad student Mm -hmm. and it was a graduate student who sent out postcards to assemble. Now, they finally got organized and got together at Vanderbilt, but it was a grad student. And so to me, our service and commitment to Melanie talked about earlier to young professionals, whether it's new professionals and or graduate students. We're living out that mission of someone who founded us was or at least encouraged us to get founded was a grad student, was Stanley Jones. That's impressive to me. Uh, and a lot of us don't know that.
3: And Michelle, I, this is a plug perhaps, maybe do it later, but a lot of people that, if you wanna know the history of Saxon, get it quickly, you can go to the website, you can click on history. And there's this, it's an article by me, I'm not plugging for me, but in 1985 at the conference, it was the 50th anniversary, and I guess the conference was at Savannah maybe, and I lived in Statesboro at the time, so, I'm not sure, but maybe it wasn't there, but anyway, for whatever reason, they asked me to give the speech at the awards lunch, and it was probably too long a speech, but I had a lot of fun with it. Instead of just giving the facts, I would start out and say, in 1950, this was a music that was playing, and this was what was going on in the world, and this is what was happening in Saxa. and I took it all the way through, and so after that, someone asked if I'd turn it into an article, and I did, and and so it's in the, and it's on the uh, website, I had I hadn't paid much attention to it, but I've, I've found sense in that when people are trying to find the history of where and look at that, um, it was built, and I didn't do the original work, it was built on some long dissertations by other people and some other articles by other people. But so when I was thinking about this and I couldn't even find my copy, and, I, and then I looked and oh, it's on the website. And I thought it was pretty darn good read myself, even though I wrote it you know, that, that many years ago. But if you wanna get a quick summary of what happened through the years, and, it, and it's a context, it's not just what was happening in Saxo, this is what was going on in the world, because we were almost always having a conference during an election week, and so you could you could put things in there, and so um, so people that want to read it, it's a, I think it's a pretty quick read if you want to skim it, and, and all the, and these stories are in there. Yeah. Well, and I'll see if we can't link that to this episode okay. when we post the episode, too, so... That's great. And maybe because the one mentor I didn't mention a while ago was Rory Ruby who was the vice president at West Georgia. I mean, West Georgia at Mississippi State. Wasn't there when I first went there, but he became the uh, vice president. He wasn't involved in SAC, so that wasn't his thing. His background was admissions and you know enrollment. Um, mm-hmm. But I took a class from him on um, student affairs literature. And from him, I learned to appreciate the history of higher education and that mm-hmm. we need to know our history. Um, and that that was extremely important. If we can understand our history, what is it that if you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it or whatever that phrase is. And so I think that's probably where that comes from. Go back and circle around and see what was happening. So, Yeah, I love that.
0: Well, and just the fact of providing the context of, because what happens in our organizations is informed by what happens in the world. And so I think that's really important. Tony, I feel like you were- gonna... Someone
3: needs to update that for the last 16 years, that, that <laughs> article. <laughs> there you go. Yeah,
1: I think, I think what I was going to add was also- um, you know, one of the other things that I think was a pivotal moment in sax's history was the starting of the foundation, you know, mm-hmm. the foundation, Fred Rhodes, uh, I think was key to that as were many other people, but I know Fred was the shepherd and stewarded that through uh, in um, 1990, I believe that was the first year of the foundation, uh, you know, that's helped us financially um, in so many different ways, but that was another key historical moment that I think people were a little nervous about creating a foundation. <laughs> if I remember those conversations, there was a lot of apprehension about what did that mean and how would our money be used? And, you know, it was under Fred's leadership that he was able to walk us through that. And, and now we have two uh, really good uh, organizations working for the benefit of Saxa. Well, and if you create it and there's a change in the executive director
0: position can you get access to those funds? Or funds?
1: <laughs> oh, there's a podcast on its own.
0: <laughs> At this point, we'll conclude the first part of this episode. Join us in a couple of weeks when we will conclude our conversation with Drs. Buck, Coffin, and McClellan about the history of Saxa and some of their insights and experiences. As always, today's Essay Today podcast about Saxa, in this case, was brought to you by Saxa. And we thank the leaders and the organization as a whole for their support. Thanks for making this happen. Additionally, Jen Lowe, as always, you know, I couldn't do this without you. Um, Jen is at the University of South Florida, and she is the one who gets our recordings from recordings to podcasts. So thanks for all you do, Jen. As we close this section of the episode, I would like to leave you with a quote. And today's quote comes from Margaret Wheatley. And it is, be brave enough to start conversations that matter. Thanks to each of you for listening. My name is still Michelle Watcher, and it has been a pleasure to host this episode. Take care, everyone. Have a beautiful day and tune in in a couple of weeks for part two. Thank you. Bye.